This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For other sermons from Antioch, you can visit the church website at antiochchurchnc.org. Now, let's turn our hearts to the Word of God. I'll be reading from uh, Genesis 38, verse uh, 13 through 19, and then... Uh, 24 to 26. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep, she took off her, her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of the name, which is on the, on the road to Timna. For she saw that Shela was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her, her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me go into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you might come unto me? He answered, I will, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send, send it. He said, what pledge should I give you? She replied, you sign it and your cord and your staff. That is in your hand. So he gave them them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and wept, went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments on her widowhood. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immortal. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah say, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to, to her father-in-law, by the man to whom the, this belongs, and I am pregnant. And she say, please identify who these are, the signet and the core and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Thank you, Jesus. I needed that prayer. I want to start by saying uh, there's exciting things going on in Asbury. You guys have probably heard about it. Um, there's a, at least an awakening happening at Asbury College, and the word that I get is that 50 years ago there was a revival that took place on that campus. And since that time, those who were there 50 years ago have been praying for another revival. So let's keep that in prayer, and let's add Antioch and Alamance County and Elon University you know, if God can raise up a revival or at least a, an awakening on that campus, he can do it at ours as well. I also want to say Todd's teaching was one of the best teachings I've ever heard on John 15, 1 through 8. 
listen to it. It will be uh, uploaded to the sermonaudio.com file. Just go to sermonaudio.com, look for Antioch Community Church, make it your favorite church, and then every time you go, you just click that favorite church, and it will come up right up. It will also be on the um, website. And also, Janelle did a great job this morning teaching on that chapter in the book, Can We Believe the Scriptures Are True? Are they reliable? Can we believe that what the Bible tells us is true? Before I get into the text, when asked on Thursday before the big game what he would pray before the Super Bowl, Jalen Hurts, the quarterback for the Eagles, said this in part. He didn't say anything about praying for victory. He said, I think the biggest thing is you get so influenced by so much around you, you just want to pray that you're the person that God calls you to be. So that's what I'm going to do. Be who God called me to be. I like that. It raises my respect. You know, we can have a goal to have a perfect family. Guess who can block that goal? Every single member of the family, because there's nobody perfect. We can have a desire to be a godly family. We can have a desire to be a godly husband, godly wife. Nobody can block that desire except you, right? So change your goals into desires, Lord, and, 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 and take away those goals that are, uh, are not possible, like my family's going to be perfect, or this church is going to be perfect, uh, because it never will be, amen? So this is a difficult passage to read, I hope you read it this week, and it's no walk in the park to preach, I'll guarantee that. I wanted to be as sensitive as I could with it, uh, which is why I asked Jesus just to read a few selections, but why, why is this story here? Why is this story here? I think there are two reasons. Number one, the simplest being it happened, right? It happened. And it further illustrates what we've seen, the decline of the covenant family into corruption. We've seen that, right? We've seen it happening precipitously. The second reason, I think the most important reason, is that from this ungodly situation, the family line of the Messiah is preserved. That's why the story is here. It's it's because this is the family lineage being preserved from whom Christ one day will be born. The story opens with Judah choosing a Canaanite wife who is unnamed. And what do we know about the patriarchs and what God told them about having uh, patriarchs having uh, Canaanite marriages? It was forbidden. Judah doesn't care. He just chooses a Canaanite woman to marry. You know, we're not told who, what her name is, but she gives Judah three sons who are named Ur, Onan, and Shelah. An unfortunate name for a young son. Sorry, Shelah. Great name for a woman. Shelah probably had to learn how to fight. I mean, let's just be honest. He was tough. I'm sure it was not pronounced Shelah, but anyway. So J- Judah then chose a wife for his firstborn. It's kind of funny. You know, it's an arranged marriage of some kind, but he chose Tamar to marry his firstborn son, Ur. But Ur was so wicked, we're not told how, he was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that the Lord put him to death. You're gone, out, done, get out of the pool. So Ur's out of the picture. Now, what's going to happen next? Tamar is a widow with no children, and the leveret custom, which will become law in Deuteronomy 25, but now it's a custom, the leveret Custom, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, custom, was that if a wife, a woman's husband died and they had no children, then it was the next son, the brother of that husband's responsibility to help her have a child. 
not so that he would have a son, but so that son would become the son of his dead brother and carry on the line that he would have had had he been able to survive and have children himself. In fact, this becomes a law in Deuteronomy 25, and it was so serious because not only would this woman have a, a son who would carry on the family name, but she would have a son who would grow up to take care of her, right? So it was so serious that if you refused that responsibility, the elders of the city, Deuteronomy 25, would bring the widow to you, she would take off your sandal, and then she would spit in your face. So there was public humiliation if you said, I'm not doing that. Well, Onan, the second brother, said, okay, I'll do that. In fact, Apparently, he tried several times. But, of course, we know that he did not want to have a child with her. And so he went through the motions, but he made sure in the process he did not help her have a child. (laughs) And so he was happy to play the part, but he did not want. Why? Because Moses tells us, because he knew that the offspring would not be his. I'm not going to give you a son that I'm not going to have any responsibility or, 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 or part with. I'm not going to do that. Be happy to play the part. So God said, nope, you're out, out of the pool. His selfishness was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that he also took his life. Now, the action against Ur and Onan, or Onan, Kidner writes, emphasizes the steep moral decline in the chosen family, which only the outstanding piety of Joseph would arrest for a while. This tendency to an immediate plunge from grace whenever faith is no longer an active force is evident more than once in Genesis, but the pattern is most explicitly worked out in the book of Judges. If you've read the book of Judges, you know what Kidner's talking about there. But I like that phrase, whenever faith is no longer an active force, things go awry, don't they? In marriages, in families, in institutions, in churches. So... The tendency there is, uh, or the bright spot in this story is, is a person named Tamar. Let's look at this story under three main points. Tamar's sorrow, Tamar's strategy, and Tamar's triumph. Now, Tamar had sorrow enough to be married to a wicked man who was so wicked that God put him to death. Right? You might think you have a tough marriage, but this guy was a piece of work, so God took him out. So that was sorrow enough. But then that sorrow was compounded by the fact that she's now a childless widow, and the first one in line who could have helped her not be a childless widow to be a widow with a child refused to do so. And so he was put to death. And then her sorrow is triply compounded by Judah by saying, okay, I want you, Tamar, to go back to your father's house. Now, this was unspeakable. Judah had brought her into his house, if you will, by, by having her to marry his firstborn son. Now he's sending her away. And why it was so unspeakable and wrong was because he had a third son who could become the one who would perform the leveret custom, custom and help her have a child. Now, why did he do that? Most believe that Judah acted out of fear, that this woman was cursed in some way. And she's the reason that Ur was put to death. She's the reason that Onan, his second son, was put to death. It was her fault. And that is 
of course, we know patently false. He told her to go home and wait until her third son, Sheila, was old enough to take his place with her. But look, we know from this text that Judah had no intentions of allowing Sheila to take that place because that time comes and it goes and Sheila doesn't call for Tamar or go to Tamar. None of this wrongdoing was on Tamar. All the blame lies with Ur and Onan because of their wickedness that cost them their lives and it lies with Judah. His faithlessness, listen, could have led to the destruction of the covenant family. Well, we read that Judah's wife, who has no name, dies. And so possibly Judah got on a horse with no name, and he headed for Timnah. And what was happening in Timnah was there was a festival of sheep shearing going on. And this was a big deal in that culture in those days. The sheep shearing time was in the spring, and it was a time of raucous celebration. And, of course, it was all men, and they would get together with their sheep, and there were probably pros there who knew how to shear sheep better than anybody, and so they would take turns, you know, having their sheep sheared. But in the meantime, there was a lot more going on, and it was characterized as uh, by feasting, heavy drinking, and the settling of old scores. So you got a bunch of men together who are drinking a lot, and they're settling old scores, and they're gambling, and they're fighting, and that's the scene into which... Uh, Judah is headed. You know, there's a story in 1 Samuel, it's very interesting, where David heard that in Carmel there was a man named Nabal or Nabal. Remember that guy? And he was shearing his sheep. Well, David is still in a, a tough situation, right? And so he's, he sends 10 men to Nabal and says, look, uh, how about sending back some of the party stuff that you've got, some food and some drinks? Send that stuff with these, these 10 men. Because, remember, we were with you. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. In other words, we were with you, and we protected you guys from the bad guys out there. So you kind of owe us, you know, send us some stuff. What did Nabal do? He refused. He said, no way I'm doing that. And that's how he ended up dead. And his wife, Abigail, ended up with David. Well, that leads us to Tamar's strategy. Right, So Tamar must have spent years wearing a widow's garment because she, we're told in this text that she, she finally took it off. She got out of the widow's widow wear. She was waiting for years for Sheila to be old enough, uh, and that time had come and passed. And Tamar knew that Judah would not keep his word to her that Sheila would come and perform the duty to give her a third son. He had deceived her, Judah just like his dad, he had deceived her, and now she's going to deceive him. She makes a plan to deceive Judah. She changes out of her widow wear. She puts a veil on her face, and she goes to a city called Enam. It's on the way to Timnah. She knew Judah would pass by there, right, on the way. And she knew enough about Judah and his character. I'm convinced of this. She knew enough about this man, her father-in-law, that if she posed as a harlot just for him... It would work. She would capture her prey. But she would also be risking her life. Alan Ross wrote, Tamar qualifies as a heroine in the story for she risked everything to fight for her right to be the mother in the family of Judah and to protect the family. She did what justice and the death of her husband demanded of her, but by a very dangerous scheme, as we see in the story. 
So you get the picture. She's sitting outside the gate of this little city, and she's covered in a veil, and she's by herself. Those two things, covered in a veil, by herself, in the gate of the city, a woman, were all the clues that Judah needed. It's interesting, uh, God uses this same imagery in Jeremiah when he's describing unfaithful Israel because Israel was going a-whoring after other gods. And, Ju- and God says, by the wayside you have set awaiting lovers, Israel. So Judah asked Tamar if he can come see her, and she asks him, what price will you pay? And he says, I will send a young goat from the flock. Here it is again, right? Another time when a goat plays a part in the redemption story. Tamar knows that Judah may not keep his word to send that goat because he's proven unfaithful up till now. His character is flawed. She knows that. So she says, what will you give me as a guarantee that I'm going to really get this goat? Okay, we're going to have this transaction. I'm going to get something from it, and I don't see no goat. You don't have any goat with you? What are you going to give me as a promise, a guarantee? So she asked for his uh, as a pledge for his signet, his cord, and his staff. Interesting, men of means would wear a signet ring like this one that had an engravement on it that was their family crest or their family seal. You would know if they sealed an envelope with this in some wax or some clay, you would know, oh, this came from the house of Judah. But some men would wear this on a cord around their neck. They didn't want it on their finger, especially if they were going to be working with stuff, and they didn't want a ring on their finger. So they would wear it. You ever seen guys in high school wear the, you know, girls wear the high school ring of their boyfriend or whatever? Does that still happen? That's old school, right? Well, it wasn't then, and so he was, he was wearing his signet, his name, his authority around his neck. She said, give me that. Let me have that one. Yeah, I'll take that. Oh, and your staff, too. And so um, she, he identified the owner, and it, and, it, and it said, this is who you belong to. You belong to this person. Hey, let me ask you a question. What do we wear as a seal as believers? Anybody have a signet ring that signifies you're a Christian? Don't tell me you wear a cross, because a lot of people wear crosses who are not what? Believers, right. We have an undeniable and irrevocable seal. You know who it is? In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That seal can never be stolen, taken away, lost, like our, sometimes our high school or college rings are. That's who we are. So Judah gives her the seal and the staff as a promise. Okay, you can have the staff, you can have the seal, uh, that I'm going to send a goat in exchange for your service. But she had no use for the goat. She didn't care about no goat. That's why she wasn't there when Judah's man came to deliver, dragging this goat behind him, right, to deliver. He came to Anaim. She wasn't there. He asked around, where is the cult prostitute? They said, what are you talking about? We don't have one of those. And so she didn't care about the goat. She wanted the signet of Judah because it would save her life. Now, let me just insert this by Ross. It's not appropriate to judge her by Christian ethics. For in her culture, at that time, her actions, though very dangerous for her, were within the law. All right? That's why Tamar is held up as an example. She did not do anything wrong in that time, in that culture. All right? 
Uh, we don't have that leveret command now. We don't practice the things that were practiced at that time because we live under uh, the New Testament. Now, when it's discovered, three months later, Tamar's pregnant. Word gets out. She can't hide it anymore. She's pregnant. Judah, her father-in-law, calls for her to be burned to death. Start the fire. Throw her in it. Burn her up. And then they say, well, hold on, Judah. There's some men here who've come from Tamar. They're dragging her to the fire, okay? But, but she wanted, and wanted you to know, for some reason, that the man who's responsible for this baby is the owner of this signet and this staff. Gotcha. And I love what Judah says. Her exoneration comes with this one statement. Judah says... She's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he recognizes that he had lied to her, he had deceived her, he had not followed through on his promise to her. And as a result of that, the lineage to continue, she had taken matters into her own hands. You know, the covenant uh, of, of family would have assimilated to the Canaanites had God let this go with no intervention. God intervened through Tamar to save the covenant family. I believe that with all my heart. Tamar was the rescuer. God rescued, but he used Tamar to do it. Tamar triumphs. So six months later, Tamar gives birth to twin boys, and the story again points to God's sovereignty because as the children are being born, one of them sticks the hand out, and the midwife ties a scarlet thread around the hand that came out of the womb first, there's a scarlet thread in Scripture, right? You can follow it all the way to the cross, the blood of Jesus. But here's that scarlet thread. And so she ties a scarlet thread and said, this one came out first. Well, the boy behind him said, uh-uh, <laughs> you watch this. So he goes around the other kid in the womb somehow. Don't know how this happened, but he gets out first. The other kid had a hand out, but he had a whole body out. Whole body wins, right? When it comes to birth order, in that right? Does everybody understand that? When it's twin, two twins, the one who comes out fully first is the older of the twins. And he comes out, and that's why the midwife looks and says, what a breach you have made for yourself. And the word there in Hebrew means breach, but it also means break out. So they named him Perez because he broke out. He went around. He broke out first. Just like Jacob somehow broke out and be surpassed his older brother and here's the grandson breaking out and surpassing his older brother or would have been older brother as well now if you notice some similar themes in this story to some other unlikely members of the lineage of Christ because Tamar is firmly fixed now in the line of Jesus it's no accident speaking of the scarlet thread who, who tied the scarlet thread on her house so that when the whole city was destroyed, she and her family would be saved. Her name was Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot. Again, she is in the line of Jesus, just as Tamar is. Who was the Moabite woman who left Moab, came to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law because her husband was dead? And she ends up marrying Boaz, what's her name? Ruth. Again, a foreigner, someone outside of the covenant family, 
But she marries into the covenant family because of Naomi's connection to Boaz and her connection to Naomi. She, she marries. But remember in the Boaz story, I love this, because Boaz was not the kinsman redeemer who was the first in line. Remember, there was another guy who was closer who could have married Ruth. And he said, no, I don't, I don't, no, I don't want that because I'm going to have to assume the property and her. I'm not interested. I'm going to have to buy the property that belongs to this. No. I'm not interested. And so Boaz marries Ruth, and Ruth becomes the, grand, the grandmother of King David and is greatly esteemed by Christian women anywhere, everywhere, and so should Tamar be. Although we're not exactly comfortable with her methods, right? We should, we should esteem her because she had the perseverance, the tenacity, the stick-to-itiveness that I'm going to do whatever it takes to have this baby, to keep this line going, she should be respected as a result. You know, it's interesting, even in the book of Ruth, she's honored. When the elders blessed the union of Boaz and Ruth, they said, May your house become like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring, the Lord will give you by this young woman. And of course, it was so. Ruth was blessed. So what can we take away from this story? Number one, God chose Judah in spite of his faithfulness, faithlessness. Again, we see the covenant family is corrupt, just like our family is corrupt, just like we are corrupt outside of Christ because there is nothing in us that God looked down and said, oh, that one, that's looking good right there. I'm going to save this person. But God chose Judah, and he chose him despite his faithlessness. Number two, God used Tamar's resourcefulness and determination to accomplish his purposes. He sometimes uses desperate acts of desperate and broken people to work out his perfect will. Right? We see that, we see that other places in Scripture where God used desperate acts of desperate people. I mean, I hadn't thought about this a lot in, in preparation for this, but I just thought about Zacchaeus climbing up the, the tree. Man, that guy was desperate to just get a glimpse of this man, Jesus. He was too short to see him, so he climbs up in a tree where he can get a, get a good look at him. And Jesus looks up and says, come down, Zacchaeus, I'm going to have supper with you tonight. And Zacchaeus came to know Jesus. And on and on, there are many more stories uh, that you can share during the Thanksgiving time. And finally, this is important, folks, listen. God's plan is perfect, and it is eternal. Listen, when Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going through 1 Peter at Elon right now with the Bible study that Brad and I are a part of. When Peter wrote this, he said, To those who are elect exiles of the, this dispersion, he said, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we need to understand what that means because there are a lot of Christians who say, oh, foreknowledge, that means God looked down the long quarter of time and he saw Tamar and he said, there's a good one. Tamar's a good person and she's been done wrong. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save her. And, and there's Peter and Peter denied, he's going to deny my son, but, but look, he's a good man. I'm going to save him. And then Paul, wait a minute. Guys, listen, that is not good theology. That's not sound doctrine. The foreknowledge of God means that before anything was ever created, 
God's favor and affection was on the people of God whom he had chosen along with his son. Do you believe that? He didn't see anything good in us, saint. There wasn't anything good in us. There was nothing good in Judah. There was nothing good in Jacob. There was nothing good in Joseph. Joseph, he's a, he's compared to these guys, he's a saint. But he's, God chose him to do this, this, this job because that's how the will of God works. To be foreknown by God means that Tamar and Ruth and you and me who are saved and co-heirs with Christ were the object of God's affection and loving concern from all eternity along with Christ. That's the only way it makes sense. That's the only way it makes sense for, for us to be predestined. Romans 8, Romans 8, Romans 8, it says it like this. It says, for those, verse, verse 20, for 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the first born among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, saved. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, which is going to happen when we are with him. It had nothing to do with our goodness and everything to do with his mercy. Amen? Let's all stand and pray this prayer together as it's written on the screen. Because we want to hallow his name this morning. Hallow his name. We've done it in song. Let's do it in prayer. Let's, let's pray this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. Antioch meets every Sunday for worship at 10 o'clock a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon. You can download other messages by Pastor Fox at antiochchurch.cc. You can also learn how to order his books or subscribe to his blog at jmarkfox.com.